Thank you for praying for the Youth Drop-In Center. We had 27 youth drop-in last week, so that was a, a great showing. And if you know people in the neighborhood that have youth, send them our way. We'd love to have them and play with them. Well, uh, if you're new with us, welcome. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pastor Eldon, the lead pastor here. Um, I want to welcome those who are listening online. Welcome to Circle. And just a reminder that you can catch up with all of the previous messages on cdac.ca slash messages. If you're having trouble sleeping at night, just put them on and you'll enjoy it. Uh, in, there are sermon notes inside your program. They're also on the back screen here, but you can go to your smartphone, you version Bible app, click more, click events, and the sermon notes will come up. You can add to them, you can save them, you can share them. If you're having trouble with the Wi-Fi and have a data plan, just go to your data plan and you'll get on. Well, last week we began the series in Perspectives. It's a look at King David. Last week we looked at a, a scene of his life where he came onto the stage, he had wonderful perspective, and uh, became very famous because of what he did, killing Goliath. Uh, today we're considering something that influences our perspectives. And David's incredible perspective on life that we saw last week changes when circumstances caused him to panic. So today, we'll explore our perspective has a possibility of changing when we are angry, isolated, and afraid. Our perspective can change when we are isolated, lonely, and afraid. These three conditions have the potential of undermining our resolve even for the most dedicated and disciplined and devout person. These conditions have the potential to crash through every moral and ethical boundary that you have set and push us beyond the guardrails we have set relationally and physically and financially and professionally and sexually. Maybe one of all or all three of these conditions are the reasons why you carry the greatest regrets in your life. These three may cause us to feel a sense of panic when we feel we have to do something to relieve the tension that we feel. And often we do something, we do anything. And most often, we do the wrong thing. We rely on our instincts and do what didn't seem to work last time, but we're going to do it anyways. And what happens is, when we do that thing that doesn't work, we carry regret, and we end up angrier and more isolated and more afraid. So I want to describe the situation today. It's really a weird story. It's not a very popular story. But our character in the Perspective series had two colossal failures in his life. One was very famous. The situation with Bathsheba on the rooftop. 
It, that was when he was in his 50s during his kingship. The other one is what we want to talk about today. David was 22 years old, and this failure is not famous, but it's kind of interesting. Last week, we talked about how he faced and defeated the giant Goliath at age 15. I mean, he didn't have, even have his driver's license. He became a legend, a legend. The king, the king at the time, King Saul, realized that David had influence, he had power, and he had unlimited potential. So King Saul was this weenie of a man. He was really insecure. And he came up with a plan to get David into his family so basically he could control David. So he offered one of his daughters to David. He said, you know, pick any one of them. I want you to marry into the family. And it's interesting how David reacted. I mean, most guys would say, oh my goodness, a choice, any choice into the king's family, I'll take them all. But David, David shows his humility. He says, I'm not worthy, not worthy to be the king's son-in-law and to be in this famous uh, family. Who would refuse an offer like that? David did. So we see that David is humble and he's amazing. Now eventually, David falls in love with another of Saul's daughters named Michael, and they got married. I'm sure he called her Mikey. So Michael became his wife. And then David, when he's in the family, befriends his brother-in-law, Jonathan, and they're close. They're really close friends. And Saul realizes that having David in the family is a bad idea. It's bad because he, David is so powerful. He's so influential. And he's loved. Saul was not loved. He's a weenie of a man, really insecure, really suspicious. And so he's incredibly jealous of David. For seven years, David is in and out of Saul's favor. On more than one occasion, Saul decides to rid David, and he would send him out on these impossible missions. He thought, for sure, David will be taken care of on the battlefield. And every time, David would come back alive. Every plot to get rid of him would be sabotaged by his own son, Jonathan, or his daughter, uh, Mikey, and David would come back alive. And David would slip through Saul's fingers. So finally, the frustration builds and builds and builds and builds, and it culminates at dinner one night. They're all around the dinner table. And dinner, in the ancient times, and to eat at the king's table, was an extraordinary honor. It was an event. All the food, all the conversation, the wine flowing, and David ate at the ta table of the king. But during the turbulent days, when Saul was insecure, and he was mad at David, David missed more than one of the dinners. Now, King Saul would, would notice David's chair was empty, and he turned to Jonathan because he knew Jonathan was good friends with David. And he would say to Jonathan, Where, where's David? And Jonathan would cover for him. He would, 
he would give some sort of an excuse. And one night, King Saul loses it, and he explodes. And this is where we're picking up the story. In 1 Samuel 20, in your notes, beginning at verse 30, it says, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, now this is the, this is the dinner table. Everybody's sitting there, right? And, and Saul's angry, and he says, he says to Jonathan, his son, obviously married to one of his wives, he says this, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I mean, that's strong. You, you kind of hope she's not at the table, but I think she was. She was there. And he says this, don't I know you have sided with the son of Jesse? He doesn't even say, don't you know you've sided with my son-in-law? The son of Jesse? So he's, he's just putting the facts on the table. Here's the, here's the situation, guys. I'm not blind to this. And he says, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you. Now, at this point, I'm thinking, gee, Saul, you need the marriage course. Like, this is not going well to your home, all right? He's blurting this out. So, as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, and here's the issue that is absolutely true. He was a prophet in this moment. He says, as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor, nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. He must die. So Jonathan just kind of, you know, poker face. He gulps down his food. He leaves the table, finds David, and he says, look, you got to get out of Dodge. Like, you got to get out of the country. Like, my father wants to kill you. And told him that, that Saul was threatened by his reputation and by his popularity. And David is only 22 years old in this situation. And suddenly, like you and like me, he would be, he's afraid. He's just afraid of this moment because his, his father-in-law, King Saul, was head of the army. He was the most powerful position in the land. And David is, is not only afraid. Can you imagine how alone and rejected he must feel? I mean, David risked his life time and again for King Saul. He was on the battlefield for him. And now, his reward is that his father-in-law wants to kill him. And in this case, David has done nothing wrong. So now, I, I, I know how I would feel. I would feel angry. And I'm sure David was human, and he did too. So not only is he angry, he's lonely, and he's afraid, and he's panicked. And in that state, in that state, he loses perspective. He loses perspective. He panics. He lost sight of God, that God was with him. And you wonder why, why would David panic and run and abandon his ethics? But you know what? You, you probably know people like him right now who are struggling with these very same issues. And when you reflect on your own life and you ask yourself, why did I do that? When you consider the regret that you carry and you say, 
Why did I call him back? Why did I call her back? Why did I say yes to the invitation? Why did I borrow and spend that money? What was going on? Simply, you were angry, or you felt abandoned and alone, or you were afraid, and, and our natural inclination is to panic and to do something often that is not rational. So the text says that David ran to Nob, some sort of town, probably like Regina, to see Ahimelech the priest. Because Jerusalem was not part of Israel at this time. Not part of Israel. The epicenter of Jewish worship was wherever the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant was. Usually in the safest place in Israel where nobody wanted to go, which happened to be Nob. Now, when David showed up alone, Ahimelech, it says, trembled. He trembled. And in verse uh, 1 of 1 Samuel 21, he says to David, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Because every time David showed up when he traveled, he traveled with a, a band of warriors. He had his whole company. So this was uh, rather strange to Ahimelech. And besides, David kind of looked nervous and disheveled, and he wondered what was going on. And in verse 2, David answered him, Ahimelech the priest. He said, the king has sent me on a mission and has said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place at a certain time. Now, David knows that lying is wrong. I mean, it's in the top ten of thou shalt not, right? But David, David here is lying because he's afraid. And he's angry. And he's lonely. And in this isolated stage, he forgets the ways of God. And David lies and says, I'm on a secret mission. Shh. And Ahimelech looks at him. And then David says, Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Again, Ahimelech is thinking in his mind, like David. You're alone, you're on a secret mission for the king, and you don't have any sandwiches in your bag? Like, what's going on? Verse 4, the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand, because he's a priest, right? He's a priest. So, David, I don't have ordinary bread here for you. However, he says, Ahimelech says, there's some consecrated bread here provided provided the men kept themselves from women. Now, let me explain. Every Sabbath, the priest would break fresh bread and place it on the altar before God. Thank goodness I'm not a priest because my bread would be flat. But every Sabbath, the priest would bake bread. Now, this sounds strange to us, but this was a way of honoring God. So, so the, the priest would put out bread for God. And the next day he'd come, and guess what? God didn't eat the bread. So they would replace it with fresh bread, and the 
bread that was there, day-old bread, they could eat as long as they were consecrated and clean, which means they had to go through this ceremony to clean themselves up to eat it. So verse 5, David replied, Indeed, indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual, whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? <laughs> David, I mean, he's just compounding the lies. Now, if you were here last week, you're wondering to yourself, what happened to David's perspective of, in you, Lord, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. What happened to that David? Or the David that said, God, you are my refuge and you are my strength. I run to you when I am in trouble. Where's that David? Here he is before the priest. Before the priest. And he's given him a pack of lies. So in verse 6, the priest gave him the consecrated bread since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now pay attention to this next piece of information because we'll come back to this later on. Verse 7. One of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doig the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. Now, the story starts to get intense here because of the next question. David asked Ahimelech, verse 8, Don't you have a spear or sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's, the king's mission was so urgent. I mean, would you buy that? I don't think Ahimelech was. He would think this is weird. You know, David, you look like you haven't slept in days. And you're hungry? And you have no weapon. And you're the most experienced warrior in the land on a secret mission without a weapon. You have no gun. Hey, what's going on, David? Now, here's where it gets really weird. You almost need some background music. I should, have had, yeah, I should have had Glenda up here for the next verse. Uh, this will transport David back in time, seven years earlier, when he became such a hero. In verse 9, the priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. So as soon as, as Ahimelech would have said that to David, a flood of memories would have come back to him. When David beheaded Goliath, he kept the sword of the, as a souvenir, and he gave it to the high priest. And in essence, it was a way of saying, God, I recognize I did not deliver myself with this weapon. It was you who delivered me. It helped David to keep his perspective that it was really God on his side. And when he was 15 years old, he stood before the giant Goliath as the armies of the opposing nations stood on either side, and they watched. And David did 
the unthinkable. He confronted the one who defied the army of the Lord and was the instrument that God used. And David had put his trust in God, and he was victorious. What happened to that clear-eyed perspective of that 15-year-old boy? Once he was courageous and God-fearing and said, you come with, to me with a sword and spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And David ran toward the, the danger. And David, who wrote, I will fear no evil, for the Lord is with me. Where is that confidence now? The answer is, he lost it because he was afraid. And he was angry. And he was alone. And these three giants have the potential to cause us to forget the defeated giants of our past. They skew our perspective. These giants have the potential to undermine our faith in God based on what God has done in the past. We forget because we are overwhelmed. And now David gets a reminder of his boyhood perspective. And the priest goes on, he says, it's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. And this was the garment that the priest wore. And the sword was wrapped in the spiritual garment to remind everyone the spiritual nature of this sword and what it represented. And the priest goes on and says, if you want it, take it. He says, there's no sword here but that one. And David said, there is no weapon like it. I'll take it. Give it to me. David takes it. And he lies to the priest. And he flees from Saul. And David should have remembered, he should have remembered that this was the sword that he wielded with the power of God. This was too much to miss. A flawed weapon. And now we're about to see a dangerous and disastrous outcome. But here's where the story interacts with ours. Right? This is where we, we interact with it. When we need God most, we are least apt to lean into His direction. When we need God most, we are least apt to lean into His direction. We are tempted to run the other way and opt for the things that didn't work before and didn't get us where we wanted to go. And that's why we carry regret. And here's the other thing that I've learned over time. It's easy to trust God when we have little to trust Him with and nothing to trust Him for. When things are going great, it is easy to sing the songs and say we trust God. But it is harder to trust God when the things we value begin to slip through our fingers. So David. David takes Goliath's sword and leaves for the land of Philistines. And verse 10 says, That day David fled from Saul and went to Asius, king of Gath. And he tells the leaders at the time, I want to join your army and I want to fight against all your enemies, including my father-in-law's army. And rightly so, they're not buying it. Like, they're just not buying this thing. 
The servant of Asius, verse 11, said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. I mean, that saying drove Saul crazy. We know who you are, they were saying. We know who you are, David. David, you are a warrior and you made trouble for us in the past by killing Goliath. You're not fighting with us. You'll get into battle and you'll start killing us off. Verse 12, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Asius, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And you can just picture this. Picture this guy. While he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, marking on the doors of the gates, letting saliva run down his beard. So David, David's playing the part of a crazy man. I mean, he should be in the debate center, right? Give him some medication. Do something for this guy. And Asia said to the servants, look at this man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of, of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Finally, David escapes that situation and he begins to come to his senses. He begins to realize, why am I running? I mean, I have this, of the sword that killed Goliath. God was with me. So he goes back to this country and finds another prophet. And he says, I've messed up. I want to know the will of God. What, what's the will of God for my life? Will you seek it on my behalf? And whenever we mess up, here's a good plan for us to come back to the place where we say, God, I've messed up. What's the will of God for my life? But here's the thing. The damage had already been done. The decisions he made were in motion. And when David was with Ahimelech looking for bread, remember, Doig was there. And Doig was the chief herdsman for King Saul. And Doig overheard the conversation between David and Ahimelech. And he reported it to Saul. Saul, the weenie man. The guy without any self-esteem. And he told Saul the, that uh, Ahimelech fed David. And Ahimelech armed David. And Saul was mad. So Saul's reaction, he calls for Ahimelech and he says to him, Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. He is a classic, toxic person. You're guilty by association. You know, you had the same motivation as David. I'm calling you on the carpet today. He's ticked. He says to Ahimelech, Whose side are you on? 
My son and my daughter and my family is against you, against me. And now my priest, my chief priest is against me. And Saul's perspective has always been skewed. It's always been crazy because he, he's so in, insecure. He doesn't even know who he is and what power he, he holds. In verse 14, Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David? Who? The king's son-in-law. He's the captain of your bodyguard. He's highly respected in your household. And Saul's thinking, that's the problem. That's the problem. They like him better than me. And Saul, everybody knows how loyal David is to you. Verse 15, was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? This is routine. David always came to me. Of course not, he says. Let not the king accuse your servant of any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. Look, you have a family feud going. I don't know anything about it, right? My motive is pure. I'm not doing anything out of the ordinary. But King Saul says, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. What an idiot, this King Saul. Saul's paranoid, and he orders something stupid on on a moment's notice. It's a knee-jerk reaction. In verse 17, the king ordered the guards at his side, hey, guys, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing that they did not tell me. But the king's officials, the, the king's officials are smarter than the king. They said, we're unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So the armies refused. I mean, they said, we'll kill the enemies of Israel, those that stole from you, but we will not kill the priests of the Lord. Now, Doig, Doig's a different guy. I mean, he, he has no character at all. And he saw an opportunity to get into the king's good uh, graces. So he raises his hand and he says, hey, king, I'll kill him. Let me at him. So verse 18, the king ordered Doig, you, take and, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doig the Edomite turned and struck them down. The priests, he struck them down. And he didn't stop at that. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to sword Nob, the town of the priests, and its men and women, its children and infants, its cattle, its donkey, its sheep. I mean, this guy has no conscience at all just kills the whole town there's no hope of any future uh, priests but verse 20 it says one of the one son of Ahimelech son of Ahitub named Abiathar escaped and fled to join David and he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord and then David comes to his senses and he says That day, when Doig the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul. And he says, I, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. 
And you could see the weight of David's statement that he was responsible for the death of the entire village because he took matters into his own hands. He ran from the problems because he was lonely and angry. You know what? Sometimes we take matters into our own hands because it feels good. But rarely does it work out well. So we're going to pick up the story next day. But to close, I just want to ask you a few reflection questions before we go. And the first one is this. What is your loneliness and anger and fear causing you to consider that you've never considered before? What is it? Because these emotions are so powerful that we fantasize about things we would tell other people. Have you ever had conversations in your own head? I mean, somebody's ticked you off and you just, you, you're going to tell them? You, have you ever been tempted that way? Probably not. You're so pure. It's only me. But these become live options for us. And I ask you, what risks relationally and financially and physically are you willing to consider that you've never considered before? Because you're lonely and you're angry and you're, you're afraid and maybe you've, you've even been contemplating re-embracing an old habit that you've broken. you spend thousands of dollars to break it, but now you're reconsidering to going back to that old way. What is it? Second question is, who is your loneliness, anger, and fear causing you to consider that you should not consider? I mean, you're thinking right now, I need to call him back, or I need to call her back now. Maybe someone made it obvious that they're, in, they're interested in you, and you haven't succumbed, but now because of what's going on in your life, you're, you're tempted. You're tempted. And suddenly that person is a live option, and you have no business doing it. Who is it? And thirdly, who else is at risk? Who's at risk? Who else's future hangs in the balance of your personal decision to give to the impulse caused by your abandonment, loneliness, and fear? Who else is at risk? And for many of you, it's your loved ones and your family. It could be your job. It could be your livelihood. But who is it? Who's at risk? And fourth, what advice would you give to someone who is you? Because deep down, we know, we know, we know what we'd say to someone else who's considering the risky decisions that you're considering. What would you tell someone whose perspective is not clear and is contemplating some of the same decisions you were contemplating that would take matters into their own hands? 
You are one of a kind. But your experience, my friends, is not one of a kind. You see it in other people. And you know how you would counsel others. And David would later give this advice. He would say, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. He just never told himself that in the moment, in the heat of the circumstance. The Lord is a refuge, not a chemical, not a person, not an affair, not an alcohol, not a new car, not a new house, not more debt. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. A stronghold is a place of safety that you would run to in times of trouble. And David says in verse 10, those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. David would say, I was so mistaken. I thought I was forsaken, but now I look back and I know that God was with me. God was with me, and he loved me, and he was welcoming me and wanting me to pursue him. Would you consider and reflect on these questions as Jared comes to sing this song that tells us of the greatness of God and his invitation to every one of his children? And that's the truth, that you are fully known, and God loves you, and he knows your emotion, and he knows why you might be running, and he calls you back because he has something better for you. Would you receive it? Today, the front is open. If you would like to come and talk about it, if you need prayer, we're available. I hope you come back next week because you're going to find another situation where David was ticked off and he was ready to do something stupid and somebody rescued him. You won't want to miss it. Bring a friend. God bless you as you go.